You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today, very, very, very excited to introduce Dr. Enric Sala. He's a explorer in residence with National Geographic. Hey, Enric, how you doing? I'm great, Chris. How are you? Doing, doing wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for you know agreeing to be on the podcast. And just to let the audience know, uh, Enric actually he does work with National Geographic, but we're going to talk a lot about his book that's coming out uh, any day now, and that is the Nature of Nature: Why We Need the Wild. And I'm going to tell you, you need to buy this book. This, I, I know we've had a few authors on the podcast before, and they've all been wonderful. Their books have been very educational, some some entertaining. This book pretty much sums up what Angie and I have been talking about the last couple of years with what's going on around the planet with conservation and animals. So, Enric, it's going to be an amazing discussion. Thank you. And I guess we'll just jump into it, you know, real quick, if you can just kind of tell our audience your background, I guess where you grew up and kind of where you're currently living now. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for your kind words. Uh, you are hired as my book publicist from now on. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I, you know, I grew up in Catalonia uh, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, I was watching the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau on TV. That's what got me excited about ocean exploration. And long story short, I ended up being a professor at the University of California, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And one day I decided that I was going to quit because I saw myself uh, writing the obituary of the ocean, you know, describing how the ocean was dying with more and more detail. So I decided to quit to work on the cure. And I've been at National Geographic working on ocean conservation full-time for the last 12 years. That's awesome. And, and where, uh, where are you located now? Right now I am in Washington, D.C., but dreaming of being in the sea again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Especially right now, oh, the election coming up. It's just uh, so much fun, huh? Oh, but still, yeah. working with National Geographic, that's amazing. So you, you said growing up in Catalonia. To, and I know in the book you talk a little bit about your past, and, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But 
you know, when did your interest in conservation start as, as a young kid or is it just, you know, as you got older? As a young kid, I didn't really know. And back then, you know, I was born in the late sixties and I grew up in the seventies and there was really not much uh, going on in terms of communications about ocean problems. The only person who was telling us about the ocean was Jacques Cousteau. And uh, he told us about pollution, sometimes overfishing, but mostly pollution. Pollution was the, the big issue that he was highlighting. So I didn't really know what was going on. And I was confused because I watched these documentaries and saw all this abundant marine life, dolphins and sharks and coral reefs and whales. But when I was swimming in the Mediterranean, there was nothing. Clear water, lots of sea urchins and very few fish and very small. And I never saw a dolphin when I was a boy or a grouper or sharks. And it took me a while when I was in college and I got my diving license. When I went scuba diving, actually I did my first scuba dive in a marine reserve of the coast of Catalonia that had been protected for a few years. And I jumped in the water, I still remember. Wow, the groupers were there. The sea bass were there. The scorpion fish were there. All this abundance that Cousteau had shown us was were there in that reserve. And then that day I realized that, wow, this is natural. What I saw during my childhood was not natural. This is what the rest of the coast was like. This is how much we have lost. Wow. So that was an epiphany for me. And did that kind of push you? I, I know we're going to kind of talk about your education, you know, especially with marine biology. But was that, uh, I guess, you said, is, when you were getting your diving diving license, was that when you were in graduate school, you know, studying marine biology? Undergrad, undergrad. It was on my first year okay, of undergrad. under, undergraduate in college, yeah. And that helped. But, you know, my goal was to, my dream was to be a, a diver in the Calypso, in Jacusto's boat. But I was born mm-hmm. too late for that. So I studied biology, I studied marine biology, and I started as a, as a scientist, not so much working on, on conservation. I started, um, you know, it just happened that one of my professors at the university in my hometown was an expert in algae. So I, I went to him and said, hey, I'd like to learn more about marine biology. And said, yeah, just go collect some algae and bring them back. And I started looking at algae and then afterwards, I, I started working with fish and sea urchins and corals, and I, I worked on so many different things now. But that's the way I started. It was totally serendipitous. And so studying algae, because I, I did see that, read that in the book, how important is algae to the marine ecosystem? Because it's just something that, it, it's a life form that I think people just go, oh, it's just algae, right? But you know, studying it. And then I guess maybe talk a little bit about its conservation. Like, are we losing algae, you know, or is algae like blooming because of global climate change, things like that? Well, algae are, without algae, we would not be here. And without bacteria, we would not be here because most of the oxygen that we have in the atmosphere right now has been produced by millions of years of work by microscopic algae and very, very small bacteria in the ocean. And people see algae, people think of seaweed. And many people are on the beach and complain, oh, you know, that beach is so dirty, it's full of algae. Well, 
if you have a beach that is full of algae, actually that's a good sign. It means the environment is healthy. And the microscopic algae, of course, most people don't know about them, they don't see them, but they are absolutely essential for our survival. But the algae on the coast, they are the habitat for many, many species, including many of the fish that people eat. I used to, when I lived in, in California and I was working at Scripps, there were these giant kelp forests of the coast of San Diego. These are like redwood forests. You have this very large algae that can grow as deep as 100, 120 feet that grow all the way to the surface and form this, this big canopy that is the habitat of all these species of fish and, and invertebrates. They are like the, the, the trees of a forest. So without the trees, there would be no, no birds. Well, these uh, are the, the species that provide the habitat. And also, with this canopy, they also are able to attenuate, to reduce the, the power of, of waves protecting the coastal zone. So the algae do a lot of things, all of which we take for granted, but they are essential for, for the well-being, for the health of our, our coastal ecosystems. Yeah, you do. You do touch upon that in the book, and I, I I found it fascinating. You know, since I I was studying more, you know, large vertebrates, and you know, doing the podcast the last few years, and and we're going to talk about it here in a minute. But I really love how you talk about food webs, things like that. So when you start starting with the algae, you know, even the, the like you said, the microalgae, all the way up to the large vertebrates, they all are just so critical to each other. How I, I guess how is not only just pollution, but, you know, climate change, acidification of the oceans. Do you know, how is that affecting the algae and these kelp forests and the health of the health of the ocean? Well, ocean warming is killing algae all over the place. There are algae like the, the kelps that grow off California or off the coast of the UK where you are now. These species, many of these species, many of which are producing substances, chemical substances that the food industry uses, for example, as um, gelatins or in ice cream or flams. So they produce this, all these um, products that are used in, in cosmetics and in, and in food products. Uh, many of these algae thrive in cold waters, right? because global warming is making the ocean water warmer. These algae are disappearing in enormous areas and off the coast of the Pacific in the US, for example, Oregon and, and Northern California, there was a, this big heat wave, this blob of hot water of the coast for, for weeks that killed 90% of the kelps of the coast. Uh, and of course, all the species that are associated with the kelp also, also go away. So global warming and especially ocean warming is, is affecting uh, these these important species. Yeah, just this week in the news, you know, I, I know we're still in the middle of this COVID pandemic, but you know, people are talking about okay, COVID's a horrible thing, but global climate change is, is just spinning out of control, and ecosystems are starting to collapse. So, is that what is that what's happening? You know, off the coast of California. I know, I know in my notes, I told you I grew up in San Diego, and you know remembering growing up, you know, with those kelp beds, but yeah, you're right. I, I can't remember the last time I've walked on the beach and seen a bunch of seaweed and go, Oh wow. You know, a bunch of seaweeds in. So 
is that, I guess, I guess my question is, is that staying persistent as far as those kelp forests are now gone, you know, and they've kind of all pushed north? The good news is that they come back. So, you know, the coast of California, for example, has had these episodes of El Nino when the water gets too warm for too long, right? So when the water gets warm during an El Nino years, the kelps go away. But then after the water goes back to normal temperatures, the kelps can come back. So we see this uh, cycle of uh, increase and, and decline in, in kelp forest. The problem now is that the water is, the baseline is getting warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer. So now years that used to be cold before, no, now are much warmer. So on a cold year now, in some years, we are getting temperatures that are similar to what a warm year was in the past. No, yeah, it's 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 not good. And I we just had an interview with uh, Dr. Henrik Nolans, and he's a wildlife veterinarian at the Pacific Marine Mammal Center. And I think it was in 2015 there was a huge warming event off the coast, and they they had to help so many seals and sea lions because they were all starving. There was no fish. So yeah, it's just it, it's a it's a sad situation, but. You know, it corroboration between uh, experts on the show is amazing. So, so thank you for that. In the book, you know, and I do kind of want to touch upon the book some. You talk about writing the obituary of the ocean, and you mentioned that in the beginning. That is, that is the one statement that stood out to me the most. And and what were you seeing when you were at Scripps? You know, I guess what were you studying, but was it just the kelp forest going away or was there some other stuff going on that you were just like, oh my goodness, this is, I've got to do something. I just can't sit here in my office. I got to get out and do something. Yeah. I started studying the kelp forest in, in San Diego. That's what I went to. That's why I went to, to Scripps to work with my friend and mentor, Paul Dayton, who was a, an expert in kelp among other things. But Soon I started going all over the place. I was working in the Sea of Cortez, in the Gulf of California, in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean. So I was having a ball going around the world in different ecosystems. And I was seeing the same thing everywhere. I was seeing less fish, uh, less corals and other sponges and other species dying because of the warming, more coastal development. So I felt, and, and that's what I was studying. I was studying the impacts of fishing and global warming on ocean life. So I felt like the doctor who was telling the patient how she's going to die with a lot of detail, more and more data, but not offering a cure. Because that's what academics are supposed to do, publish papers in scientific journals. So we were yes. <laughs> all excited when we published and you, you were an academic too. So, you know, we are excited and yeah. we are rewarded when we publish uh, as many papers as possible. And yeah, wow, we have another paper with more data, with more statistical significance showing that the problem is worse than we thought. Yay. So mm-hmm. it was pretty frustrating. <laughs> it was pretty frustrating. So I decided yes. to quit, quit academia and work on the cure instead. Right. Right, right. I mean, it, it's so true because you know, in academia, you're you are pressured publish or perish. I mean, that's that's what they tell us, and so you you do all this work, you write it up in this very sci- heavy scientific jargon that nobody but people in your field really understand, and then you publish it, and then pat yourself on the back, and then you go back and do the next one. The problem is that 
a lot of that data doesn't get to the public, right? It doesn't get to decision makers. It doesn't change society. So I, I, I sense the frustration because I was there too, you know, it's like, oh, I got to do more. I've got to do more for the planet than just sit here and write these papers. Yeah. So, so when you left academia, did that leave you, uh, lead you to National Geographic? Well, I took a year off and I went to hold the first position in marine conservation biology at Spain's National Research Council. And that was a great opportunity because the research council paid my salary, gave me an office and told me, you you raise the money for your research. So I had some funding for research. So I was doing a project in the, in the Mediterranean with some local colleagues, but I had no responsibilities really. I didn't have to teach. I didn't have PhD students or postdocs anymore. So I had the time and the space to think. And I came up with a, crazy idea. I thought, well, there are these places out there, a few of them, that are still remote, uninhabited, unfished, unimpacted by direct human activities, that are still near pristine. And I had been to one of them in 2005. And that was the best place I've seen in my life. So I thought, why don't we go to these places, document them, survey them, and try to get them protected? in marine reserves, in national parks in the ocean before it's too late. So this is how my project Pristine Seas was born. And I went to National Geographic in January 2008 and proposed this idea. Let's use what National Geographic is well known for, exploration, research, and media, to try to save these critical places, some of the most beautiful and wild places in the ocean. And believe it or not, they like the idea. (laughs) So I moved to Washington, D.C., yeah. <laughs> and we've been doing this for the last 12 years. Oh, that's amazing. And so is, I, I guess, some of the pristine seas, I mean, the only thing I could think of is really our southern oceans. And I, I mean, if correct me if I'm wrong, you know, the, the South Atlantic, South Pacific uh, were some of the last untouched uh, oceans left, and now they're being exploited. Is that true? Or are there other areas that, that are still kind of pristine, not exploited yet? Yeah, you mentioned, you're right. You mentioned areas that are remote and far from people. And unfortunately, there is this correlation, negative correlation between people and the health of uh, the natural world. So, but there are still a few places there. As you said, Southern Ocean, in the middle of the South Atlantic, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, the middle of the Pacific, in the Arctic also, that are still wild and they look like the ocean hundreds of years ago. But they are indeed going away because right now over 60, 65% of the ocean has been affected by industrial fishing. There is fishing almost everywhere there is fish. So this is why it's so important to save these last wild places before they go away but also it's very important to protect places that are degraded so they can come back. Right. And, and just, just for the listeners, I mean, some of this is, is touched upon in Dr. Sala's book. So again, you, you want to read this because it just uh, is it, jaw dropping and really ties in to what our ecosystems look like across the planet. So uh, make sure you pick that up, but you know, thinking about the seas and the Arctic is, is, is it just fishing or is it 
uh, you know, oil and gas exploration. Uh, I know whaling is still going on in, in the Southern Oceans. What are the pressures that these these last pristine areas left are, are facing? The same pressure that the rest of the ocean is facing. It's all of them. I, I like to divide them in three big groups. One is global warming, which is turning the ocean warmer and more acidic, killing coral reefs and marine life like kelps also all around the world. Two is overfishing, which means that we are taking fish. We have been taking fish out of the water faster than they can reproduce. So we are in a situation where 90% of the large fish, the sharks, tuna, cod, groupers are gone. We've killed them in the last 100 years alone. And 82% of the fish stocks are overfished. And three, it's pollution. Some pollution we can see like plastic, some pollution we cannot see like heavy metals that is affecting the food web, but also we end up eating that stuff ourselves. So these are the, the three main the three main buckets and they all interact and overfishing is making the ecosystems less resilient to climate change, which is also increasing, which is reducing the biodiversity in some areas, is making species move away. So it's it's all it's all connected. It's death by a thousand by a thousand cuts. Yeah, yeah that's a good, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, we just did in July. We we did plastic free July. You know, every year and really focused on the oceans and and so we did focus on corals. Uh, finally, we we touched on. Usually, we do mammals and you know larger vertebrates, but we decided to tackle that invertebrate because it's so critical. How, in your opinion, how are corals doing across the planet? Uh, you know, the deep sea corals versus the shallow corals. Uh, is it just across the board? They're all degrading quickly? Deep sea corals are still okay, except for the places where there is bottom trolling. And you know, with one soup, one pass of uh, a net can kill growth of thousands of years. The shallow corals are in much worse shape. And today there are estimates that say maybe a quarter of the corals have died. And you know, if we think about the what success in preventing climate change, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement, the goals are to not to exceed 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius relative to of temperature, global temperature, relative to pre-industrial levels, right? We are already at one degree. So two degrees or one and a half, let's say two degrees. Uh, success in terms of trying to prevent catastrophic climate change, but that means that 95% of the corals will be gone. It's crazy. It's just, uh, it's, it's not acceptable. <laughs> it's just, it's not acceptable. We've it got to reverse not acceptable. these. No, and, and in your opinion, is any of this slowing down? I mean, we're seeing countries across the world. You know, I lived in New Zealand for a while. And they were they were doing a good job of getting rid of single use plastics. Uh, Germany, I think I just read, was going to ban single use plastics. Uh, here in the UK, you know, I don't see you know it's still here, but a, a lot better than the states. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, are we losing the war quickly, or are some is some of this slowing down? In your opinion, it is difficult to be optimistic these days. <laughs> <laughs> and we are we are winning battles, but we are still losing the war. There are countries like, like those you mentioned, 
that are leaving. Uh, another example would be Denmark, which bet on renewable energy, on wind power, right? And the economy has been growing. So uh, there are countries out there that are doing the right thing. Other countries have protected a lot of their land and waters. But in general, uh, the general trend is still downward. We're still losing more nature than we are recovering, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. And then you're so the pristine seas project. I, I know you mentioned it. So really, your goal is to go and and preserve. I guess if you can explain to our audience more of of what that is exactly, and then how you go about uh, making these reserves and protecting uh, the marine life. Yeah, so our goal is to help to protect some of the last wild places in the ocean. Some are uninhabited, but some are inhabited. They have local communities. So we do expeditions to these places, scientific work to show, to measure how healthy they are, economic analysis to show the benefits of protection versus over-exploitation, produce films to inspire the communities and the country leaders to protect this place in what we call you know, marine reserve or marine protected areas. These are areas where there is no fishing, oil drilling, mining, development, destruction of the habitat or any other damaging activity. And what happens there is extraordinary because once the place is protected by law and there is no fishing, marine life comes back spectacularly. I've been places that were degraded, come back in just a few years. Of course, the more you uh, wait, the better the, the recovery. But we can detect changes, in positive increases in marine life in just three to five years. And we've seen places go back to pristine in only 10 years. But there is more. You know, This is not just about marine life. This is also about the people living around these areas because they also benefit. And this is the way it works. You know, we have conducted studies all around the world and have seen that on average, the biomass of fish, you know, the tons of fish per hectare inside these no-take areas, these marine reserves, is 600% higher than outside. Not only the fish are much more abundant, but they are larger. You know, and we, we when you don't kill the fish, they take a longer time to die, right? Mm-hmm, they reproduce mm-hmm. for longer periods, which means that they produce a disproportionately larger number of eggs, which together with some spillover of adult fish outside the, these areas help to replenish the areas around so that local fishermen are doing better and their incomes increase, their catch improves. But also these places with the fish, you know, when the fish come back, the divers come in and they, in many of these areas, are great magnets for diving tourism, which helps to create jobs and bring brings in uh, additional and much greater economic revenue, helping helping the local people and the local economy. So these places, it's th- this is the good news that if we give some space to the ocean, if we give nature some space, she can come back. Uh, the ocean has, and nature in general, but especially the ocean, has an extraordinary ability. To bounce back so it's i know it's like i we know what the answer is right but how do we convince governments and i know you're probably frustrated uh, there in washington dc but how do we convince 
governments around the world that we need to act. And I know some are, but you know, I keep reading in the news that a country, I won't name them here, but huge fishing fleets off Ecuador or other countries from halfway around the world there to, you know, fish out their stocks. So I guess what's the the answer on trying to convince governments, you know, I guess what could our listeners do or or what are some of the solutions to to get people to listen to scientists like yourself? Well, when I was in academia, I thought that information was all that was needed, right? That leaders aware yeah. of the information would make rational decisions. Ha! Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the way that nope. The, wor- the world works, right? So what we do with pristine cities is first we try to make them f- fall in love with these places. So if we can have them dive with us or go in the submarine with us, they and invariably they fall in love with this wild nature. If they cannot come, then we bring that place to them through our films. And once they fall in love with these places and they realize that these places are unique and irreplaceable and that they need to be protected, then we come back with the science and the economics to be able to answer the question, but what about fishing? How much is it going to cost? And what we have seen is that these protected areas actually help fishing, benefit fishing. We could protect more than a third of the ocean strategically, the right places, and increase the global catch of fishing worldwide. Mm-hmm. No, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, when, when it's you, important when message, you have yeah. to You have to use the economics, right? And we have another a study that shows that if we protected a third of the planet, land and sea, the benefits would outweigh the cost. So for every dollar that we invest in protected areas, nature gives us at least $5 in return. So it's a no-brainer. But we do have to use the economic argument. Absolutely. That's money talks, right? I mean, that's we always say that when it's not about the money, it's always about the money. And, you know, it's something conservationists around the world are faced with, you know, balancing economic versus, you know, trying to save a species. So, yeah, it's a good point. It, just to switch gears a little bit, in, in the opening of the book, you talk about Biosphere 2, and I just, I, I wanted to address it because I always found that to be fascinating. And I wish I, I read up more, and so I will after reading your book and going, wow, I really want to read more about that experiment. But can you briefly talk about some of the lessons we learned from that? And I guess explain what Biosphere 2 was and then what we learned from it. That was an experiment where eight people were supposed to live enclosed, totally isolated in a futuristic um, building structure of uh, Tucson in in Arizona. And scientists built ecosystem like a coral reef, a wetland, a tropical jungle inside that big structure, and also agricultural fields. Assuming that we could recreate a self-sustaining ecosystem able to sustain a small human population. But it didn't work. After a year and a half, after lots of problems, they had to open the valves and inject oxygen into the system because they couldn't predict that uh, the concentration of CO2, carbon dioxide, was going to increase. So they were actually feeling 
something similar to altitude sickness. So that shows that with all our ingenuity, you know, our technical abilities, we are still not able to recreate something that nature gives us for free and that we take for granted. We are not able to recreate the conditions that make life on Earth possible. So right now, Mars is not an option. We better take care of the only home we have, which works. So if it ain't broken, you know, don't tamper with it. That's true. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, it was it was fascinating opening to the book. I just was like, wow, it really it really drew me in right away. And you, you what was oh God? I forgot some of the species that they had in there, and they all yeah, half of them died off, and it just it was just a fascinating experiment. But that kind of leads me to my, my next question, because, you know, in the book, you talk a lot about ecosystems and ex- explain it very well uh, from the top or the bottom up. But one of the things was food webs. And we talk about food webs all the time. And you mention it quite a bit uh, in your book. But I guess if you can explain it to our listeners from your standpoint, like a, a food web and why they're important, I guess, and then when you start removing components of it, what could happen? A food web is a web of species and their interactions. So who is who and who helps who, for example. We can think of food chains, right? You think of the little uh, rodent, the little mouse, which is eaten by a weasel or a fox which in turn can be eaten by a coyote, which in turn can be eaten by a wolf. That's a food chain where you have species A is eaten by species B, which is eaten by species C and so on. But then also we have these species of mouse that uh, make some holes on the ground that are, when they are when they go, are the home for another species, which in turn... Uh, defecates outside these holes and, pro- and brings fertilizers for some species of plants around it, which in turn are going to be the food of some little insect that is going to feed some bird, that is going to feed a larger bird, that is going to feed uh, an eagle or a, or a hawk, which in turn is going to scavenge on the corpses left by the wolves. So you have all these food chains put together with arrows that go up, arrows that go sideways. It's all the interaction between those species that create these these food webs. Right. And so when you start, I guess, eliminating pieces of that, I mean, are you, we're going to talk about it here in, in, in a minute, I guess, in some of the, I guess, the sea otters and stuff. But, you know, is it, it what happens if we just take out one species from a food web? Is it possible that, whole web can kind of get obliterated or does it kind of adjust or I guess where's the tipping point is kind of what I was going to get at. No, food webs are this complex structure that seems pretty robust, but it can be very fragile. It's like the Shinga um, game where you have those sticks forming a tower. You remove sticks and nothing happens until you remove the one that makes the entire structure collapse. The same thing happens in nature. You remove the usually the predators at the top of the food chain, like the wolf in Yellowstone or the sea otters on the kelp forest 
or the sharks on coral reefs and the whole system will start to unravel until eventually collapses because these species because of their ecological role they are like the keystone of the system you know if you think about an architectural arch the keystone is that stone at the top that keeps the arch together if you remove it the whole structure collapses yeah no it's 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 a good vibe i i haven't used the jega uh way to describe it but that's a perfect perfect way you know it's just that one species is the final tipping point and then that's it so yeah so it led me to one of the in in your book you talk about uh, jim estes and his work with sea otters can you kind of explain what his research showed i guess it was his i found it fascinating with the sea otters and then the sea urchins and, and you know i guess if you can kind of explain how you explain it in the book without giving it all away, I guess, so that way people can buy the book to read it. Yeah, so basically Jim discovered which was the stick that made the entire Jenga structure collapse. Long story short, he found that the sea otters are what keeps this kelp forest in Alaska um, intact. The sea otters are the keystone species. Sea otters eat sea urchins in Abalone, but they love to eat sea urchins. You've probably seen these videos of the very cute furry sea otters on the surface with an abalone shell or an urchin on, on their bellies and with a, and breaking the shell with a, with a stone. Well, sea urchins eat kelps. They are like lawn mowers underwater. If you remove the sea otter, the sea urchin population explodes because they have no predator and they will eat all of the kelp forest away. I've seen these sea urchin explosions basically turn a kelp forest into a barren ground. Barren, completely barren. So when the kelp forest goes, all the species of fish that depend on the kelp forest also go away. And that happens because of the removal of just one species, the sea otter. So Jim, through a fascinating story of research, which you can find the book. I'm not going to give it away, as you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he yeah. found he found uh, why this happens, and th- the story is fascinating. I mean, you know, it's one of these cases where you study something, and then one day, by pure coincidence, you see something else that makes you rethink how the system works. No, it was, and that was like one of the stories I read in the book, and I was just like, yes, I mean everything I've been studying these last few years doing this podcast and, and talking to experts like yourself and, and, and getting a grand picture of what's going on around the planet. And that story within your book, just wow. Brought it home for me that, yeah, it, it's just it, it, beautiful experiment experiments, even though the story isn't that great, but it just shows the importance of, you know, sea otters contribution to maintaining an ecosystem in there, you talk about orcas and some changes in there. And I'll, I'll let people read that in the book about how they changed some of their hunting strategies, right? And, and some of the stuff that they were they were hunting because of that. The next thing I wanted to talk about was was Bob Payne's experiments you, you describe in the book. And I guess, can you explain to our listeners what his green world hypothesis is and then what we learned from it? Yeah, that was a hypothesis of one of Bob Payne's professors, Bob Payne unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He was a professor of ecology at University of Washington in Seattle. And when he was studying 
biology, one of his professors in college, asked them, look outside, look at this tree. Why is it green? And some people said, well, because of the chlorophyll in the leaves. Yeah, 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 but why are there leaves there? And the professor said, because the birds eat enough insects so the insects don't eat all the leaves away. So you have a predator that regulates, controls the abundance of an herbivore that would otherwise eat all the plants. That's why the world is green. That was this hypothesis of, of the green world. So Bob knew that predators had a, an important role in, in the world. So when he arrived to the University of Washington as a professor, in the 60s, he went to the intertidal zone, this area, the, the limit between the sea and the land. And he first started looking at the food web. What species live there? Who eats who? And he saw that uh, there was a species of starfish, the ochre uh, starfish, that ate almost everything else, ate mussels and snails and, and a bunch of other things. So he decided to do an experiment. And from one rocky outcrop, he grabbed all of the starfish and he threw them away to deeper waters. So basically he removed the predator. And when he came back one year later, the whole system had have changed, the whole system. What used to be a diverse community of algae and invertebrates with many species had turned into a monoculture, just one species, mussels. That's the power of the predator. You remove the predator and the prey, the main prey, without having that, that predation pressure increases in abundance and basically the muscles pushed everything else away. So remove the predator and a diverse ecosystem turns into a monoculture. Yeah, it was it was amazing to read that because uh, you know one of the the stories I'm glad now you gave me some more ammunition in in future podcasts because you know we talk a lot about the wolves in Yellowstone when the wolves were removed elk deer proliferated ate all the young asp and willow uh, all these young trees that didn't have a, a time to get established so it completely changed the ecosystem like you said monoculture it, it became dominant with you know overgrazing and these large herbivores things like beavers left a lot of birds left uh, there wasn't this diversity of, of wildlife only when the wolves were reintroduced in the 90s did that ecosystem rebound. So it's it's just from the oceans to the land, right? We're seeing that with other species too, right? Like with sharks, what, I guess I, this just popped in my head. And if I can ask it, what are some of the consequences we're seeing with, you know, the, the horrific, you know, slaughter of sharks across our world's oceans? Sharks are like the wolves, or the lions of the sea. They are mm -hmm. predators on top of the food web. And removing them is just the first step in a series, in a, a cascade of effects that lead to, to degradation. And when you think of the two endpoints of a coral reef, one is a coral reef with living corals, lots of fish and lots of sharks. The other endpoint 
after you have removed the sharks and all and the other species is a reef where the seaweeds have overgrown the corals and the water is murky and full of microbes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just again that food web. You start uh, removing key key species, it, it, you start to see uh, impacts. Just a few more questions, because you know, I, I, plus I, I want people to buy the book. I, I definitely, I'm going to get a hard copy. I'm, you know, I know <laughs> I, I got a, a digital copy. I am going to get a hard copy when it comes out. Um, but you know, we have a lot of students that listen to the podcast. You know, they email us all the time from around the world, from Japan, you know, to the United States, and they want to get involved. They they want to work in conservation. Do you have any advice for them? you know, like, like what they can do in either their undergraduate or, or pursue a graduate degree or things that you would advise them to do? Well, that's a pretty general advice. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I it's say, a hard one. Sorry. Just, like, we, you know, we get well, it all the I, time. But you know, when I started, when I was studying marine biology, even some of my professors told me, you know, don't do this because there is no job for marine biologists. You know, there are only so many jobs in academia, so you, know, you better study something or, you know, do something that will give you a greater chance to, to have a job. And I said, screw it. I'm going to study what I love, what I'm passionate about. And we need more biologists, more ecologists, more conservationists than ever because our world is under siege. We have been so good at destroying nature so fast. So we need all the help we can get. So I would tell students, if you are really passionate about what you study, if you have a clear purpose, either doing basic research or applied research or you want to work in conservation, just do it. Um, and you know, just use your skills, your, use your, what you are good at to make sure that you make a difference. But don't be discouraged by the few available positions because you know in my case I was I was very lucky that I got a faculty job at Scripps in San Diego. But then when I left the job I have now, you know, that it, there was not the job offer. There was not a posi- an open position. I came I, I knocked at the door in National Geographic and I proposed something crazy and they liked it. So I basically was able to create my own job. So yeah. don't That's feel awesome. constrained. Awesome. Don't feel constrained by the system you live in. Don't live with a mindset of scarcity. If you want to do something, just find a way to do it. And if you have to create your own job, try. But don't be discouraged by the people who will tell you that you, this this job has no professional future. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's great advice. That's great advice. And and I know our listeners will appreciate that. So you wrote a chapter on the morals of, I, I would say, conservation. Now, I didn't read that on purpose because, again, this is why your book spoke to me so, so much. This has been a question I've asked of pretty much all my guests since I started this podcast with Angie a couple of years ago. Because I, as a, when I was a professor at University of Florida, and I was in a, a meeting with, you know, other academics and we were talking about one of my grad students had, get, had given a talk on conservation and animals. And we got in this huge debate on why we should even do anything, just let nature take its course. And, you know, I obviously was on the side that we need to take action. 
but one uh, one of the professors, uh, he's world renowned, and I highly respect him. And he got up and he's like, "Well, I don't think we have a moral imperative or a, a moral responsibility to act to save endangered species." I, he just didn't feel that way. So I've asked this of all my guests, and I'm glad you wrote about it in your book. Huh. So my question to you is, do we as a species have a moral imperative to act and protect our ecosystems? Absolutely, because it is us who are destroying them. I find this, uh, you know, this separation of, let's say, church and state actually dangerous in this case because so many scientists say well you know my job is just to do science and and provide uh, and, and publish papers and I don't care if it's not used and I'm not going to go you know the extra mile to communicate my results so these people are socially irrelevant many of them and I can say that because I used to be an academic many of them live in this parasitic world where they are paid with public money to do the research to do what they like without, um, you know, so they are enjoying the privilege, but they are not exerting the responsibility. And in this world today, where we are losing species and ecosystems, you know, we're losing tropical forests at four, at the rate of four football fields per minute. One million species could become extinct if we continue with business as usual during this century. Now we are unplugging our life support system. What we're doing is crazy. We are we are sowing the branch we're sitting on. So we do have a moral responsibility. And you know, if you are religious, look at the world: nine million species of plants and animals, a trillion different species of microbes. They all interact. They depend on each other, and they create these wonderful ecosystems: the forests, grasslands, wetlands, peat bogs coral reefs, kelp forests, you name it. And these ecosystems just work. And they do all these wonderful things like producing oxygen, providing insects that are going to pollinate our crops, capturing and filtering seawater, also preventing floods, protecting the coasts, our coastal villages from the destructive impact of storm waves. Everything we eat, except in the United States where there is all this processed stuff, but everything we eat is supposed to be a plant or an animal. Right? So everything we need to survive depends on the work of other species. So even if you are selfish, just from a utilitarian perspective, we do need nature, right? But but still, if if you are religious, this is this baroque of nature, all these species interacting together in ways that we are only starting to comprehend. It's a miracle. It's it's God's creation, right? If you're a scientist, or or if you are an atheist and believe that this is just the product of, or you can be both, right? But if you believe that uh, the complexity of life on Earth is the product of purposeless evolution, wow, what a miracle! Also, look at what physical and chemical processes and biological processes have come up with. How wonderful there is nothing else in the known universe like this right so it doesn't matter how you you look at it it is a miracle the world we live in and we should be worshiping it we should be worshiping nature because it is what keeps us alive right so 
and we, but we are destroying it. So definitely we have a moral imperative. All these creatures, all these other creatures have an intrinsic life, intrinsic right to exist, right? Nobody has put them there to be our slaves, to produce things just for our own selfish purposes. So I think that we need to shift from this traditional, arrogant, anthropocentric uh, mindset where we are at the top of the universe and every other creature is here to serve us to a more humble approach where we see ourselves as one more citizen of the biosphere. That's amazing answer. <laughs> yes, and I can I can sense the passion. I'm right there with you. I am right there with you. Yes, that is that's amazing. I, well, can I say something else? You know, I don't know where I and and other creatures start. You know, we all of us carry trillions of human cells on our bodies. Thirty trillion. This is more than stars in our galaxy, which is you know one of these numbers that is oh, comprehensible. Well, we have the same number of microbes in our bodies, mostly on our skin and our guts. Without these microbes in our bodies, we, could, we couldn't survive because the microbes on our skin, the good microbes, help us fend uh, skin diseases that could kill us. The microbes on our guts help us process the food that we couldn't process and assimilate otherwise. So you know what happens when you take lots of antibiotics? Then you have some intestinal problems, right? Because we are killing that bacterial ecosystem. And we have at least 140 genes on our DNA that we, had, that we have absorbed, that we have um, imported from microbes in our bodies over the course of human evolution. So we have the same number of cells that are human as microbial, and we carry 95% of the DNA we carry in our bodies is microbial, not human, right? So maybe we're just a conduit for all these microbes to move around, you know, and every every hour when we, now everybody's worried about, ex, you know, expelling viruses, etc. When we breathe and talk normally, we exhale millions of bacteria every hour, you know, in normal, in normal conditions. So, you know, where... I think that the, the line between humans and the rest of the biosphere, the rest of life, is very blurred. Because you know, what is the what is the limit between me and the microbes? If we share DNA, if we share genes, if they are absolutely key for my my survival, it's a. Uh, I think it's a uh, pretty humbling to know that the oxygen I breathe has been made mostly by bacteria in the ocean, and the food I eat is, is uh, digested thanks to the help of bacteria in my guts. It, it, we are. We're all interconnected. I mean, all of life on Earth is interconnected, you know, from the plants to all the animals, the insects, right, the microbes. Uh, it's just we're all one ecosystem, and it's horrifying to see what's going on out there. So I, I wanted to ask you, you, you know, the last two questions were, what can our listeners do to help to say like the oceans, what's one thing they can do? You could say, if you were going to do anything, do this. And then how can they help the pristine sea project that you run? In general, there is something that people can do every day that is good for them, is good for the environment, the ocean, the land, which is eat more plants and less animals. We eat 
too much animal meat, which our bodies do not need. And livestock takes up a lot of land and a lot of fresh water. So if we ate mostly plants, we would need less land to produce our food. And part of that land we could go, we could give back to nature, which then could give us all these other benefits that we obtain from it. And also livestock is one of the largest producers of greenhouse gases contributing to global warming. So that's something that everybody can do. And that would help the ocean, the planet, and also our own health. Now it's that yeah I'm right there again right there with you it's it seems like you know it's just uh that's why the book was so amazing and again the book is the nature of nature why we need the wild by Dr. Enric Sala and anything else that our listeners can do I mean do you have a website they can go to or you know for National Geographic uh, that they can follow up more on your work yes to know more about pristinesis you can go to pristinesis.org pristinesis.org and also i'm launching uh, very soon my website enricsala.com where you'll be able to learn more about the book and and purchase it but also there is um, other resources there to know more about uh, about our work that's amazing. And, and I hope uh, I will get my own hard copy and I'll chase you down one day and have you sign it because it's, it's an amazing book. It's an amazing book for our audience. Uh, you know, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, it's definitely going on my reading list um, for anybody I recommend on, on conservation and understanding of ecosystems. It's very easy to read and very impactful. So, so thank you for writing it. I mean, it, amazing book, amazing book. No, thank you so much. You're very kind. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like I'll be your publicist, so <laughs> I'll join you're the hired. team, you're, Henry. You're, you're, you're so hired. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so Dr. Enric Sollett, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. Uh, it's very inspiring what you, what you, you wrote, and we're going to follow you in the pristine seas, and, and, and I hope uh, you know, we can promote some more of your stuff in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.